Welcome to Dialogues in Afro-Latinidad, a podcast dedicated to amplifying and elevating Afro-Latin American and Afro-Latinx histories, cultures, and communities. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Reed Vasquez. Join us for conversations with experts and artists to learn more about Afro-Latinidad. Venga. I'm so happy today to welcome our guest, Dr. Kia Lily Caldwell. Dr. Caldwell is a sociocultural anthropologist and professor of African, African-American, and diaspora studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Her research focuses on race, gender, Black feminism, health policy, and HIV AIDS in Brazil and the United States. And her current work examines the impact of the coronavirus pandemic on Black communities in the U.S. and Brazil and how Black women have re-envisioned democracy and human rights through activism and office holding across the Americas. And I'll be remiss if I didn't mention her several publications. She's the author of two books, Health Equity in Brazil, Intersections of Gender, Race, and Policy, published in 2017, and Negras in Brazil, Re-Envisioning Black Women, Citizenship, and the Politics of Identity, published in 2007. She is also the co-editor of the 2009 Gendered Citizenships, Transnational Perspectives on Knowledge Production, Political Activism, and Culture. And through her work as a co-founder and director of the African Diaspora Fellows Program for middle and high school teachers, she co-edited Engaging the African Diaspora in K-12 Education, published in 2020. So welcome, Dr. Kia Caldwell, to the show. Thank you so much, Michelle. So uh, you have built your career in North Carolina, but you're from Philly. So what was that journey like from there to UNC Chapel Hill? How did you become interested in these experiences of Afro-Latin Americans? Yes, it really began in my childhood in many ways. Being from Philadelphia, there is a large and historically has been a pretty large um, Puerto Rican community in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And actually, my mother um, was a bilingual education teacher. She worked with Puerto Rican kids in elementary school. Um, many of them were kind of circular migrants. They went back and forth between Philly and the island. Um, and so I grew up having some knowledge of Spanish, was really interested in the language. I had a chance to to travel to Puerto Rico in high school. When I was a senior in high school, we went for about a week Mm -hmm. during spring break. Um, And that was very eye-opening. And I think in terms of African diaspora studies, uh, that particular trip sparked my interest in African diaspora studies and the African diaspora because I saw brown-skinned Puerto Rican women Mm-hmm. Uh, who look like women in my family. Exactly. And that just, I think a light bulb went off for me um, at that point. And then when I got to Princeton, I was pre-med initially. I was interested in going to medical school, but I also was really interested in um, perfecting my Spanish and learning more about Latin American culture. So I ended up being a Spanish literature and Latin American studies major. Um, I was on the pre-med track, um, left that behind, obviously, mm-hmm. um, somewhere in the course of things in, in college. But mm-hmm. I also, um, when I look back on it, I realized I was attempting to do Afro-Latin American studies. The field was not where it is now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember doing a junior paper um, because we had to do independent research, a junior paper on Nicolas Guillen's poetry in oh. Cuba and mm-hmm. um, also my senior thesis, which was mandatory uh, at Princeton, um, mm-hmm. was on uh, New York poetry and poetry by Puerto Rican authors. And so, you know, I was really trying to look at the experiences of Afro-Latin Americans 
without a lot of guidance, but it was mm-hmm. something that was of interest to me um, wherever I could find it. Um, and then actually my sophomore year in high school, um, excuse me, sophomore year of college, I mm-hmm. heard um, a black woman activist and scholar, Joselina da Silva, who's from Rio, um, speak. And I think another light bulb went off at that point about Brazil specifically, yes. um, and just realizing uh, based on what she was saying, about her organizing with other black women and black feminism in Brazil, uh, that there were black people in Brazil, right? Um, right. Which often has been neglected when we think about Latin America, mm-hmm. surprisingly. Uh, and so after that, the following year, my junior year in college, I took a year long Portuguese course. Um, and then when I got to graduate school at UT Austin, I really focused on Brazil. And uh, that's where I was able to develop expertise really in Brazilian studies and begin to travel there. That is, that is really amazing. You have just kind of continued this self-education. Like I'm interested in this. Okay. Let me do more. I don't know. You know, no one's really, like, as you said, the field was, was not as fully developed as it is now. So there weren't all these scholars available materials available and you took it upon yourself to learn language, multiple languages, to just, you know, to go to activities on campus, to just really fuel your interests. And that's, you know, that's something that's not always done, that students don't always do. So it's really incredible that it's taken you, just continue with the steps uh, to get you to working on Brazil and and all of that. Uh, I know that you're really passionate about education, especially about uh, marginalized peoples, particularly Black women, uh, as well as issues of gender equity and anti-racism. Can you tell us a bit more about how you were drawn into those? You've given us a little bit of the background, but how did you really kind of start to really dig deep into those spaces? Sure. Um, I think I've just followed my passions throughout mm-hmm. my career. So um, really realizing that Black women were pretty invisible in terms of what we knew about them, Black Brazilian women um, in the U.S. um, Drove me to do research as a doctoral student. And the first place that I was connected with in Brazil during my first trip there back in 1994 um, was Galadez, Instituto da Mulher Negra, um, the Black Women's Institute, a Black women's NGO in um, Brazil, which was founded in 1988. And, um, And I would say just throughout my career, I've tried to keep a focus on issues that have been sort of marginalized and communities that have been marginalized and trying to bring light to those things and use my scholarship um, to do that. And so uh, that's, I think that's what drives me. Uh, and, and what is enjoyable also uh, is, yeah, I think, you know, for grad students or people who are considering academic careers, or even if you're in an academic career, really coming back to your passions will help you stay the course um, Mm -hmm. and help you, I think, also to make a unique contribution because we, each of us sees something from our own perspective that other people might not see. Mm -hmm. And we're able to kind of bring that in a sense to the world. Um, Mm -hmm. And then I would say also with my first book, Negras in Brazil, I was really interested in writing a book Um, for students in many ways, for undergraduate Mm -hmm. students, because I realized that there was not much published in English Mm -hmm. about Black women in Brazil, and at that point in Portuguese either, (laughs) in many ways. And so I wanted to have a book that I could actually use in classes, because when I was teaching my courses, there wasn't much that I could draw upon. Uh, So I think really trying to fill gaps um, and bring um, 
more knowledge of Afro-Brazilian experiences, especially Black women's experiences in Brazil um, to a U.S. audience in many ways has driven me, but also bringing together an analysis of race and gender intersectional perspective mm-hmm. um, has been really important in terms of my work and a, a, a contribution I've really tried to make throughout the various projects that I've been involved with. And speaking of thinking about things along those lines in terms of your contribution uh, for understanding Afro-Brazilian women, Afro-Latin American communities, can you, I guess, give us an example of where you have seen that that work, that effort paying off? Has it been with students in the classroom? Has it been with, in the US or students in, in the classroom in Brazil? Has it been with co- colleagues, other educators? How do you, how have you seen those, your, your efforts kind of come to fruition? So I do think that, um, for example, my first book, Negras in Brazil, has been impactful. Um, because it was the first book published in English to focus on Afro-Brazilian women's um, experiences and activism. Mm-hmm. And so we, we've we seen this growth. I mean, you and I have both witnessed it. Um, if I can say we were in graduate school together at UT Austin, right? Yes. And so we know that many years later, Afro-Latin American studies actually exist as a legitimate field, which, you know, yes. some of us were, um, part of launching this field in many ways through our work. And we know it didn't exist when we were undergraduates or really as graduate students, although there were scholars working in the field, but it has been consolidated so much more. Mm -hmm. And I think in terms of Afro-Brazilian studies, the field has changed tremendously. Um, There are now, you know, multiple books published, especially by Black women based in the U.S., that have made gender front and center in terms of how we think about Brazil, that have made race, a critical part of the conversation. So it's almost hard to talk about Brazil now or teach about Brazil now without recognizing that there are racial inequalities, that racism mm-hmm. exists. And if I think back to the early 1990s, mid 1990s, there was still a debate about racial democracy. But I right. think at this point, the racial democracy thesis has largely been debunked. Although there are still Brazilians who believe it, there's still some scholars who promote it, but mm-hmm. it's just not as common to take that angle and to, for people to, you know, sort of say that there are no racial problems in Brazil, it's a non-racist society. And then I think there's so much evidence to the contrary, even with the pandemic currently, mm-hmm. um, the coronavirus pandemic, that it's, it's really hard to make that claim that Brazil is a non-racist society. So for me, the payoff is really, the publications, you don't know who your, your work touches in terms of publications. Mm-hmm. Um, seeing the field change over the past 20 years or so um, has been great. Um, and then definitely with students, mm-hmm. with undergraduate students, um, which is what I primarily teach or who I primarily teach, uh, really seeing their perspectives change over the course of the semester mm-hmm. um, from anything, you know, it could be anything from us talking about slavery and the mm-hmm. fact that there was slavery outside of the United States to thinking about the present day and issues like police violence mm-hmm. uh, in Brazil. So uh, the I see the most immediate impact and visible impact on my own students, but I can mm-hmm. think about the larger field as well. No, absolutely. I was just wondering, I know from my own teaching, this often comes up, but do students ever seem, are they often really surprised to hear about the, the, the size of the transatlantic slave trade outside of the U.S.? Or are they, do they come to the table with, of course, of course, I've always known that 90% 
enslaved Africans went to the Caribbean and Latin America? How, how are they usually, what's the usual reaction? Typically, I think most students are surprised. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I ask this pretty much every semester in any class where I talk about slavery. And there are at least two courses where I do that. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, this semester, some students did say they knew about it um, before, but maybe not the extent of the mm -hmm. transatlantic slave trade outside of the US. But I do think there's still a perception, which is a misperception, that the United States um, was the largest player in slavery right. and in the slave trade. But when you look at the numbers, it's more like maybe 300,000 as compared to close to 5 million for Brazil, right? So right, right. Um, I think a lot of students are still surprised and they're still not learning that mm -hmm. prior to college. And then even if they learn it in college, it's almost optional. You know, it's based on whether or not they sign up for particular courses. It's not right. well integrated into the curriculum as a whole. And I, from my from from my understanding of uh, this new book, this new edited collection, that's what you're trying to help educators uh, address. This book, I'll just re reiterate it for the listeners. It's called Engaging. Oops, I got the right one. Yes, Engaging the African Diaspora in K through 12 Education, uh, and that was meant to specifically help middle school and high school teachers get at that information. Exactly. Yes. Uh, so the goal behind even starting that program back in 2014, the African Diaspora Fellows Program, which led to the book, um, was me seeing students semester after semester come into my courses and not realize there was even slavery outside of the United States. Mm -hmm. And wanting to intervene somehow, and also realizing, as we were saying earlier, that all of this amazing scholarship is being produced by you know, faculty at colleges and universities throughout the world, really. Mm -hmm. um, but it doesn't seem to be reaching middle and high school classrooms. Right. Um, and, and so I, you know, I was just wondering about that disconnect and realized that it would be great to start working with teachers. Uh, so the book um, contains chapters on Afro-Latin Americans, Afro-Germans. Um, I wrote a chapter on the transatlantic slave trade and slavery. Um, we have it's just really a wealth of resources, not only chapters written by um, academic researchers, but also by teachers who participate mm -hmm. in, our, in our program um, and school administrators and also archivists and archivists wrote a chapter and a librarian. Mm -hmm. um, so we really tried to provide sort of hands-on resources for teachers that they can incorporate uh, into their classrooms. That's fan. I mean, that is really fantastic. I know that's that's been it's it's it is difficult sometimes to get at. We we because as scholars, we kind of have it at our fingertips. But when you're trying to think about material that's appropriate for you know middle school and even high school, that's that is often harder to get at. That is often yes. harder to get at. So thank Absolutely. you so much for that resource. I, I know that people are going to really enjoy that. Um, and I and and thinking too about uh, in addition to the education, what else do you think are some of the most urgent issues for uh, Afro-Latin American communities today, especially as they relate, relate to your work? Well, health, um, I would say, is definitely at the top of the list as we think about the coronavirus pandemic. You know, we're doing this podcast recording um, as we're headed, we're in the, now in the second year of the pandemic, the global pandemic. And, yes. um, you know, Brazil has been extremely hard hit, is now leading in terms of, I believe, cases and deaths. You know, it's above India, which is mm -hmm. just it's like, it boggles the mind. How could this have happened? Um, 
particularly given the fact that Brazil has a free public health care system, it has universalized right. health care. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say health um, and health disparities and need for um, more attention to those issues in terms of research and you know, interventions um, for Afro-Latin Americans, because so often race is not considered and it's not part of the data, even the census data, mm-hmm. you know, for many countries. Um, and there is a denial that racism and race, uh, racial inequalities exist throughout Latin America, mm-hmm. which yes. then has implications for health. Um, I would also say violence, you know, um, mm-hmm. racialized violence, state violence, police violence, um, violence tied to land, land issues for Quilombo communities, maroon mm-hmm. communities in Brazil or black communities in Brazil, but as well as in places like Colombia, um, land displacement and the violence involved with that. Mm-hmm. Is a, is a real, it's a, it's a crisis really. And we often are not talking about it here in the United States. Um, and I know there's been a push for the Congress and Congressional Black Caucus to pay more attention to those issues. So we do need to be um, supporting um, these Afro-Latin American communities and thinking about the policies, trade policies and so forth that impact them. And then democracy, I think as a whole, thinking about um, the ways in which the, the move toward more authoritarian sort of political formations um, mm-hmm. impacts communities of African descent um, in a different way and, and very intensely um, in terms of denials of rights, political repression, um, which is very racialized in many ways, but it's not often seen that way in Latin America because the discourse tends to be more about class than race. Um, Yes, no, absolutely. I mean, just thinking about even the bits of news I've seen lately, the issue of, of the health of violence, uh, uh, and certainly democracy, all of those pieces are um, in a, in many ways, a precarious state, and especially hard hitting for, um, for black communities and other um, marginalized communities in Brazil and throughout Latin America, as you point out, it's not just a Brazil issue, it is Latin America, and even it stretches into the U.S. I mean, we think about the own kinds of disparities right here as a result, before and currently, um, as a result of the corona, coronavirus and what it, what, it has, what it has laid bare for, for all of that. So I think um, I know that you have talked a little bit about kind of this, the transnational issues, especially re- relating to, uh, to Black women, uh, but I think certainly all of those could certainly apply to kind of, as you say, trying to get Americans to look at this uh, these kinds of issues in Latin America, outside of the U.S., because it's it's not an isolated situation. Exactly. Yeah. And also thinking about how we can organize, I think, across mm-hmm. these transnational lines and lines of kind of language and linguistic differences as well, um, and at least stay informed about what's happening in other countries. I mean, in some ways that takes us back to Pan-Africanism, mm-hmm. you know, the Pan-African movement, um, Garveyism and different efforts to really unite people of African descent across borders. And what, you know, what does that look like and what should that look like in the 21st century, I think is really important. Yes, no, this 21st century moment, it, it's, it's, it seems like there's so much that we should have learned by now. And, and we have so much more to learn, but I think that piece about the, this, this is not an isolated world and we should really, you know, work as hard as we can to make those kinds of connections. Um, and I know you do a lot of a lot of that in your books. Um, as I, in addition to your work, uh, the book Health Equity in Brazil, 
um, intersections of race, gender, and policy, the more recent one, and then the engaging the African diaspora in K through 12 education. What other specific kinds of resources then would you recommend to people interested in learning more about this topic, these communities, or anything else uh, in this kind of Afro-Latin American realm? Yeah, um, so I, you know, when I think about my own work, um, transnational solidarity has really been at the forefront of my mind for the past three years or so. And um, a lot of it resulted from, unfortunately, Marielle Franco's um, assassination back in March, around this time, March of 2018. Mm -hmm. um, she was a Rio City Council uh, member who was brutally assassinated um, on March 14th. And so uh, several colleagues and I, um, Black feminists based here in the U.S., co-wrote a statement which was published in the, the, um, in the Black Scholar. It's available online. The title is On the Imperative of Transnational Solidarity. So Kristen Smith, Keisha Kahn Perry, um, Tiana Paschal, Wendy Muse and I, um, and, and Erica Williams and I co-wrote that statement. And then I also was involved with the film project um, called I, a Black Woman Resist, which Sherelle Barber, who's a professor at Drexel University, um, produced and was involved with. And so that's about Marielle Franco. Um, and it, it was an effort to bring her story to a US audience that might not be familiar with her. So those are some things that I know have been happening and several other people have written about Marielle and there have been other efforts to call attention to her life. Uh, and then I also was involved with a two-part issue of the journal Meridians, which, um, includes translated pieces by Afro-Latin American women uh, and activists, and then other scholarship looking at Black feminisms in Latin America, and that came out in 2016. Uh, and then if people are interested in organizations in Brazil specifically, I'd encourage you to look at organizations such as Gala Days in Sao Paulo, Criola in Rio, um, the Articulação de Mulheres Negras Brasileiras, um, the Articulation of Black Brazilian women, their websites, as well as the website for Instituto Odara, which is mm -hmm. in uh, Salvador, Bahia. And there's another organization that's been around or network that's been around since 1992, um, the network of Afro-Latin American, Afro-Caribbean uh, and women of the diaspora, um, the Red de Mujeres uh -huh. Afro-Latinas, Afro-Caribeñas y de la Diaspora. And they have a website as well. So, you know, this type of regional and transnational organizing has been happening. And in many ways, Black women in Latin America have led the way mm -hmm. uh, in this work. So I feel that those of us here in, in the U.S. can actually learn a lot from the work they've been doing um, over the past 40 years, uh, which has been really important. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing your journey with us, sharing this fantastic information, the priorities, the urgent issues uh, that we need to be aware of at the very least. Uh, thank you for, for all of this and for, your, for the passionate work that you've done uh, and, and, that, and that continues to be done. And we hope that you will, that well, that you'll join us again at some point, but, uh, but I certainly urge our listeners to take a look at our website and see all the resources that uh, Dr. Caldwell has mentioned will be available to everyone. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Dialogues on Afro-Latinidad, please subscribe to our podcast and tell a friend. For links to the resources mentioned in the interview, visit our website at michellereedvasquez.com forward slash podcast.